Hi, everybody. Welcome to the January 27th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Duzuti. Thank you very much for joining us. Tonight is a very special episode as we kick off the 25th season of Colorado Inside Out, making the program the longest-running public affairs show in Colorado history. Well, you're seeing some of the highlights from the last uh, 37, I'm not sure if that would be a highlight last year, that 1973 show, but you're seeing some of the great highlights over the last 25 years. We're very excited to kick it off. You saw our new open, and we have a little uh, new table here. Patty Calhoun, let's start and give us some of your thoughts of the show reaching this milestone, a milestone that you were at the very, very beginning. You were for the first show and all the way through the 25 seasons. I know. I was in diapers during the first show, and I'm going to leave in diapers. (laughs) What's always been great about this show is no matter who's on it, no matter what we talk about, you go out in the community and everyone comes up to you and wants to talk about what's going on because they feel they are part of it, too. So Mm -hmm. now more than ever, a community discussion is important. One of my favorite, there have been many favorite moments, but we had a reader who had this fantasy that I was the secret love child of Al Knight and the late Susan o- Sue O'Brien, and I'm so honored. Not true, but I love it that people are at home at 8 o'clock with their little Colorado Inside Out fantasies. It's uh, one of one of different, many different conspiracy theories we've heard about the show. David Copel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, you've been with this since I think about '98. That's right yes, when uh, yes. uh, Tom Tancredo said the only thing better than being on this table would be to go run for Congress, and we were fortunate enough to have you come along. Your thoughts? Well, I'd say one of the greatest moments, not only in CIO history, but in all of Colorado television history, was on a a parallel program, Colorado Inside Out Live, which was on Wednesday evenings and and hosted by Peter Boyles. And he was doing a show on on pit bulls. And there was a... (laughs) So the guest brought along a a puppy pit bull that was on the table and kind of hanging out and being being pretty mellow for most of the show. And then towards the end and the climax of the show, the puppy threw up and not just a little, but quite a, a projectile vomit. Yeah. And that's something you rarely get to see on television these days. Uh, it, not the first time this show or its parallel shows has inspired projectile vomiting, but that was certainly an epic uh, an epic uh, memory. Eric Sonman, political analyst, uh, you've seen uh, the show go through a variety of uh, eras. We've had uh, different hosts. Uh, you've been a part of it for a long time. What do you think? Did you say eras or errors? <laughs> both. <laughs> both. both. It, it's been an honor to be part of it. It has been a lot of fun. It is something you look to as the week uh, draws to a close. Uh, my memory is uh, from the similar uh, to David, not that show, but also the evening Colorado Inside Out Live when the departed Pierre Jimenez, who uh, has since uh, left us, unfortunately, but um, we, we occasionally have problems with the cell phone going off. I seem to recall Miss Calhoun having that problem on more mm-hmm. than one occasion. But Pierre took it to a new high or a new low when he actually answered the phone and had a little phone conversation in the middle of the program. What I value and love the most about the show is the civility, and I think now more than ever, that kind of civility, we can disagree, and we can disagree strongly and vehemently, but we talk one at a time, we respect each other's viewpoints, 
that stands in nice contrast to so much TV these days. I wholeheartedly agree. I've heard that from more than one uh, viewer who has said, uh, you guys don't talk over each other and don't yell at each other. I like that. So we're, we're happy to be a, uh, some civil discourse in a, in a landscape right now that doesn't offer a whole lot of that. Running at the panel, Penfield Tate, attorney with QTAC Rock, also a long-time state lawmaker. In fact, uh, a state lawmaker, when we were talking about that as a panel years ago when the show started, you've gone from being part of the topics we talk about to now on the other side. How do you feel? Well, as the new kid on the block, it's good to be here. Thank you all. And, and I echo what everyone else said. I guess um, during my time on the show, the two more memorable moments was when I was new to the crew and the, the, the group and didn't quite understand the protocol. And I started talking over and arguing with David over, I think it was concealed carry that day. Um, he got worked up. I got worked up. Um, but also a highlight was when we went on the road and did the show at the Highlands Ranch um, Library. That was fun to have an audience and actually get some interaction with the audience. You, you see the real impact when you talk to the viewers who've been following this and, and argue with everybody on the table, and they also still come back for more, so we're grateful for that. Let's get to it. The cities of Denver, Aurora, and Boulder could lose federal grants over how they handle undocumented immigrants due to a sanctuary city's executive order issued by President Trump this week. Denver and Aurora mayors both asserted that their municipalities are not sanctuary cities. However, Boulder has embraced the label wholeheartedly, and the ACLU has also promised legal action. Uh, Patty, I don't know if we're just dicing up words here when it comes to the definition of sanctuary cities, but it seems that's going to come into play. What do you think? Well, and it's going to, we're going to be debating it here for a while because back when Wellington Webb was mayor, there was indeed a proclamation that Denver was a sanctuary city. So is that still extant? But that's not really the point here. The point is who thought when we sat here a week ago that Donald Trump would take off so quickly with so many crazy executive orders that I would be sitting here agreeing with Lindsey Graham for one of the first times in my life because he's defending the right to drink Corona and tequila without a 20 percent tax. You have to think about not just the sanctuary city issue, but $15 billion to build that wall, which no matter how Mexico is coerced into paying for it, Congress is still going to have to come up with the money first. So you think, what could $15 billion do to actually do a sensible immigration policy to make sure the DACA kids are able to stay in this country, to make sure that, that America is still the land of the free and the home of the brave and that people who need refuge can come here? Let's put that $15 billion to something better and let's really keep America great. Uh, David, I, I don't. Sanctuary cities is one of those terms that I'm not sure has a legal definition. You're one of our two esteemed lawyers in the panel. I will lean on you. Of is that going to come into question as now that there's an executive order about it? Well, you can call it anything you want, but it, it is primarily uh, state or local government refusal to cooperate or assist in the enforcement of, of federal immigration laws. Thanks to the 7-2 pro-states rights win in the Obamacare cases in 2012 on the issue where the Obama administration and Congress wanted to cut off all traditional Medicaid funding to states unless they doubled and greatly expanded Medicare with a completely different thing that, that uh, doubled Medicare spending. The Supreme Court 7-2 ruled for our side, which is you, you can't do that. And that is the strongest defense that these sanctuary or whatever they are cities are going to have. Part of the Chief Justice Roberts' decision in that case 
affirms that, yeah, the federal government can give money in a conditional grant, but there's particular rules on it. And one is, if there's conditions, besides, you know, just here's the money, go have fun with it and spend it for the following purposes, but also we're going to cut it off if you don't do something else, that's got to be clearly expressed. There, I don't believe there are few, if any, current federal grants that have a clearly expressed condition that says you have to help enforce immigration law or we're not going to give you the money. Now, future grants could do that, but in terms of this, but that would, those would be appropriations enacted by Congress. For the grants that are out there, I think there's actually very little ability in terms of this executive order when it's implemented, presumably according to law, for any grants to be clawed back uh, by inventing conditions after the creation of the grant. Hmm. Eric, we've already seen uh, a community in Miami-Dade County caving to the idea, saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll start enforcing the laws. Do you think we're going to see more cities fight and maybe have legal action like we're probably going to see out of Boulder saying, we'll, we'll fight this with the ACLU, or more cities like Miami-Dade County that will um, just go ahead and cave to the issue? I think it's going to depend. My prediction over the short term would be fight. Over the long term, I think cities will have to see how much money we're talking about and how serious and orchestrated and coordinated the federal government is in terms of actually withholding the money. Is it symbolism or is it real and how real, uh, how real is real? Uh, I'm with Patty in the sense of this whole 20% tariff tax, call it whatever you want. I don't understand in terms of President Trump's rhetoric or then candidate Trump's rhetoric about making Mexico pay for the wall. I don't understand how a tariff is making Mexico pay for the wall when it is only going to get paid and reflected in the cost of consumer goods in this country, whether those are cervezas or televisions or automobiles or whatever. Obviously, if you're slapping a tariff on, it, it gets reflected in the price of what we all buy. So I think that is a sort of a phony way of uh, trying to justify a campaign pledge that Mexico will pay for this wall. I'm worried that if we put ourselves 10, 20 years in the future or the 50th anniversary of Inside Out, and I <laughs> hope by that point we have uh, different panelists here, but uh, uh, come that point in time, I'm not sure this era is going to be remembered all that well. I think one of the criticisms, and obviously it's important to me as a first-generation Jewish, uh, first-born son of uh, two German-Jewish immigrants to this country, is when you look at the late 1930s, this country was awfully sparse with its welcome mat to refugees who desperately needed a landing pad. I think we will go down at, in the same kind of um, historical categorization as that era that is not an era you want to be compared to or remembered for. The notion of all this Mexican immigration has really been a misnomer for the last several years. There, there's many people moving south as moving north. Statistically, it is really Central American refugee escaping gang violence, escaping political repression, not in Mexico, but further south in Central America and obviously in other parts of the world as well. Penn, do you think this, uh, whether it's a sanctuary city's point or all the other stances on immigration, can become a significant rallying cry for Democrats that are now in the minority? Uh, not only do I think it'll become a significant rallying cry for Democrats, I think it'll be a significant rallying cry for a bunch of people. Um, and a point Eric raised, I think, is important in this conversation because it's a subtlety that's lost on many. Um, despite all the blustering and everything, uh, it's important to note that that Immigration from Mexico 
is less and less the issue. It's more immigration from Central America, which in the minds of many evidences why some people say this is all racist because the wall isn't even going to address the real issue. The real issue is people coming from countries other than Mexico fleeing criminal activity, um, you know, dictatorships and, and violence. And, and so no one's talking about that. I, I think it's ironic that you've got a president now who was so critical of President Obama and the use of executive <laughs> orders, and he spent the first week cranking out executive orders like 40 going west. I mean, he's having signing ceremonies, and he's just throwing them out on the table in contrast to Congress, which has not done a thing in the last week. I don't even know how many days they've spent in session, except they're going to photo ops um, and, and talking about this president. Uh, it, the 20 percent tariff, uh, you know, it's insane in the, in the fact that in order to do that and claim that Mexico's paying for a wall, actually all of us U.S. taxpayers and consumers will be paying for the wall when we pay the additional 20 percent price. So now this president is going to have to concoct some sort of weird tax rebate mechanism to try to give us back our money, but then that puts a hole in the budget. So how do you get money from Mexico? No one's talking about that. No one's explained it. And I submit it's because they never thought through the fact that they'd have to govern based on some of the claims they made during the campaign. They might be able to raise the money if they just put a 20% tax on all the pens he's using to sign the executive well, orders. That too. I mean, that's, that's a significant uh, charge right there. Hundreds of thousands of people, both locally and across the nation, gathered on Saturday to send a message to President Donald Trump. Trump. Denver's version of the Women's March was one of the largest in the country, with close to 200,000 attendees. The focus now turns to see whether this energy leads to action. David, I think even some of the organizers were probably surprised at the number of folks that showed up, uh, not only in Denver, but uh, across the country. What were your thoughts as you saw the protests? That if in when we were on the eve of the 21st century, if somebody had made a political prediction that in the future Donald Trump will be president and the first major protest against him will be women wearing lady parts costumes, um, that would have seemed to me to be a, a very far-fetched uh, kind of science fiction thing, you know, maybe a bad Saturday Night Live sketch or, or you know, <laughs> something equally preposterous. They were large crowds, unquestionably, and I, and I think the you know, the, among the, you can always get a significant crowd for abortion rights, but this was this was larger than than that sort of typical crowd you can draw. I mean, it was it, it was enormous, and I think that tells you that when these issues come through Congress, uh, you know, uh, cutting off Planned Parenthood funding, maybe uh, federal restrictions on abortion. Uh, there is going to be a large citizen movement to push back at that. Now, they're, they're heavily concentrated in large urban areas, which are not swing areas, so that, that somewhat reduces their political influence, but they're still going to be large and influential. Like on the other side, the same rally we're seeing today, the March for Life on Washington, which has always drawn huge crowds and, not, and usually not such wall-to-wall uh, uh, friendly media coverage. But so there's a large citizens movement on the, the other side of this as well. And for me, this shows the genius of the American political system if we enforced it, which is on things where we're supposed to have a Congress that only a national government that does certain things well, national defense, post offices, bankruptcy laws, and stays out of a lot of other things like issues like abortion, for which I don't think this, the Constitution says anything 
properly interpreted one way or the other. And if we made it more of a state issue, then you wouldn't have to have this climactic battle where half the country is going to get an a national solution imposed on it uh, contrary to its will. If, if we had more issues done at the state level, then you'd have the large majority of people living in places where the laws are fit them. Eric, what kind of effect can a protest on rallies like this have politically? It has a tremendous effect. One, it gives people an outlet to vent, and obviously for Democrats who are still in a state of shock at this election that they never imagined that they were going to lose. Some elections, you know you're on the downside. This one, Democrats never anticipated being on the downside. Uh, presidents who govern in a time of massive protest, it doesn't tend to end well for those presidencies. And I think that will be the story of this particular presidency. Uh, four years is a long time, and there will be ebbs and flows. But if you think of Lyndon Johnson and the protests then, that presidency ended with his withdrawal after the New Hampshire primary. If you think of Richard Nixon, and you can think of others as well, when there is that kind of massive activity in the street, it speaks to some deeper upheaval, um, deeper upheaval in society. I'm just stunned by the fact, Dominic, we are seven days into this presidency. It seems like a lot more than seven days. This kind of intensity, whether it's the intensity of the executive orders and the leather-bound cases coming out of the White House, or the intensity of the protest movement, or the intensity of the media outrage, it can't sustain. I mean, the, the, the flame can't burn that bright week after week, month after month. But yet, I anticipate that this, these protests, and they were large protests, uh, they might be child's play compared to what's coming next week and in the weeks after, after the Supreme Court announcement. I mean, these were protests amorphous before there was really any specific policies to protest. We we're about to have a Supreme Court appointment, whatever the merits, and it might be a local appointment, as I will note was my prediction uh, at the uh, first of the year show, that it might be a local judge uh, going to the court. But whoever it is, uh, it is going to galvanize the protest movement if it is all a conservative appointee. Penn, how does all this energy turn into action? You know, I think we'll see it once Congress sits down and starts to do something. But, Dominic, I want to go on record with something. Um, one weekend, let it be known, I'm going to agree with Donald Trump on something. <laughs> well, we'll work this down, okay. He's right. When you see all of the protesters, protesting is fine, but had they voted, they may not be protesting in the street. They might have a different president. I went to an economic summit this week, and, and one of the, the panelists said over 100 million qualified voters didn't vote in this last election. Enough said. Uh, we've now got a president who's fixating on whether the protest crowds are smaller than his inaugural crowd, um, which is odd. Um, but I would submit that um, no set of alternative facts can change the fact that pictures don't lie. When you look at a picture of the mall during the inaugural and a picture of the protest, it's clear which was larger. I guess Photoshop is a set of alternative facts. You could Photoshop <laughs> some more people in for the inaugural. But um, I, I think we're going to continue to see protest and opposition. Um, and off, I offer this to folks, to David's point. There's a reason why we are called these United States of America. The 11th Amendment notwithstanding, there is a presumption and understanding that we are bound together because of some common ideals, philosophies, and points of view. And finally, to Eric's point, I, I believe that if this president appoints someone who repeals Roe versus Wade, there's just going to be upheaval. 
Patty, uh, finish it up for us. What did you think about the tone and tension of all the rallies we saw? It was remarkable, and I don't know if you were there. I was in Denver's. My, two of my sisters with their daughters were in Washington, D.C. Uh, the first thing that we, uh, we saw this weekend was that size matters. We know that Donald Trump is completely obsessed with that. And at the very time, he was so inappropriately talking about the crowd while he was at the CIA um, speech. Amazing crowds were gathering in Washington, in New York, in Miami, around the country, in Denver, where the count still, we know it was over 100,000. How much more? What was remarkable to me is the groups I was seeing coming in. Women, 20-somethings, women and men, who clearly had never really, really thought this all through and were marching down there. The women with their babies and signs on their babies marching down there. It wasn't whining. It wasn't so much a protest as a positive, we're together on this. David, there may not be anything in the Constitution about abortion, but there's not a whole lot in the Constitution about women either, women who weren't able to vote. And I think we're going to see these women and their supporters, which I would hope includes everyone at this table, are going to continue pushing. And there are three events this weekend in Denver alone that are continuing to push the, the march rules. And I think they're going to stay active. Let's get a quick take on this last one. Three healthcare groups, which managed 30, which managed 30 hospitals in Colorado, have opted to not participate in the new end-of-life law passed last November. At issue is the rights of hospitals to ban their doctors from prescribing the drugs to patients. Experts say that this ambiguity may need to be decided in court. Eric, your quick take on this one. My quick take is I'm very conflicted on this one. After taping a debate with you on mm -hmm. Proposition 106, I ended up being convinced it was good, strongly in favor of it, wrote an op-ed in favor of it, and yet I believe in a right of conscience, and I believe that uh, medical facilities do have a right, whether it's on this issues or other issues, to follow their conscience. This is a particularly a high-stakes issue in rural areas where there might only be one hospital, and uh, then people are without options. Penn, are we headed to court? Uh, I think we're headed to court, and I can appreciate the fact that Centura, SCL Health, and Health One want to opt out of this. Health One has taken a more moderate stance in terms of letting their doctors issue the prescriptions. Um, something's going to have to be done because I think it, it's too extreme to, to have the systems tell docs you can't do certain things. But you've got to respect the fact that maybe these systems want to control what happens in their facilities. Patty, you surprised for what we've seen? Well, it isn't surprising because it is true. People feel very strongly about this. Personally, they want to be able to have an option, just the same way voters wanted to have that on their option when it comes to the end of their life. So we're going to go to court, and you hope they come up with a solution that allows both sides to have some comfort. Dave, wrap it up for us. Courts are going to have a very easy time with this. The law, as enacted by the voters, has very strong conscience protections. New Colorado Revised Statutes 25-48117. A health care provider may choose whether to participate. The definitions section, 25-48102. Health care provider means individuals, like doctors, and also includes a health care facility. The law is crystal clear. Nobody has to assist in suicide. We're celebrating our 25th season. You broke a clear rule. You brought in research for a, for a, a take. But <laughs> nonetheless, I think it's uh, still well said. Let's get to our favorite part of the show. It's been this way for 25 seasons now. Disgrace of the week. Patty, start us off. So many disgraces and so little time. I'm going to have to go with the Trump administration beating up the media already. You know, the alternative facts world. The media is so horrible. They're awful people. 
And it's one thing for Trump to say that, but Steve Bannon, who was at Breitbart, I mean, really, isn't he part of the media? And now he wants the media to just shut up. Interestingly, I would say they are giving the media more than ever to talk about and report on. David. Um, I, my admiration, I, the disgrace is people who try to shut down free speech on campus, but admirably the administrations of the University of Colorado and the University of Washington have stood up to these fascists. Eric. Ditto to both of those. I was going to go where Patty was, but since she said it, we beat up on uh, President Trump plenty well on this show. It will not be the first time. On the other side of the aisle, the Democrats in shock are still trying to figure out how to respond. Let me tell you what one bad idea was, that we need their own Democratic version of Breitbart. Uh, there was announced this week that something called True Blue Media, started by David Brock, who's a pretty sketchy character, and he's hired Colorado's own David Sirota to lead this effort. The answer tell whatever happened on the right with Breitbart and fake news and all the rest is not for the Democrats to go down into that gutter with them. Penn. I, I agree with everything that is said. Um, one of the problems we have now is this administration has been so fixated on trying to, to um, disempower and really delegitimize the media that it's frightening it in. Whether you agree with Ed and Edward Snowden and his ilk or not, one of the things to remember is that our whole country was founded on a principle that there'd be this transparency and this free and open exchange is found in the First Amendment. And this president, this administration is beginning to worry me by the way they're responding to all of the press that doesn't agree with them, alternate facts notwithstanding. Let's get to the hardest part of the show. Say something nice about somebody. Patty, please start us off again. The first and last time that environmentalists are going to applaud Donald Trump, uh, the fact that the federal government would be the landlords for Christo's over the river, down on the Arkansas River, <laughs> inspired Christo to pull the plug on that project, allegedly. The project was always inappropriate for that part of beautiful Colorado. Love what Christo does. That wasn't the place for it, so good that it's over. David. The much-derided Republican establishment turns out to have made two strong predictions. Mitt Romney in 2012 said Russia is our greatest global adversary. Nice to see everybody finally catching up to his correctness on that from then. And Jeb Bush, who in the fall of 2015 said that Donald Trump would be a chaos president. You may be for or against it, but he was accurate in that prediction. It wasn't chaos the get smart uh, yeah. thing with Russia? That was with a K. Got it. Okay. Eric. I'm just going to go with the 25th anniversary of this program. Uh, it is an important contributor to the dialogue and discussion of politics and other matters in Denver to our viewers who have been with us over a very long time and really to the people behind the scenes. The four of us and others show up, do the panel. That's fine. It's really rather easy in some respects. But to the people who really do the work and they, their, their names might run the credits at the end, but you don't see them particularly you, Dominic. I think you've been with this show for maybe 21 out of those 25 years. Absolutely. Mostly behind the scenes, now out front for the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. Well done. Thank you, sir. Penn. I'll share it with um, police, Denver Police Chief White and Nick Marshall, the Independent Monitor. Over the whole debate, the presentation and debate over the modified use of force policy, it is not perfect, but what I like is both men were brave enough to say it isn't perfect, but there are good things in it, and there are things we need to work on, and that's the progress we need to see in the city. That is all the time we had tonight. Thanks for tuning in for this very special 25th anniversary episode of Colorado Inside Out. For everyone here at Channel 12, I'm Dominic Tizzuti. Thank you very much for watching. Good night.